Hi everyone, uh, Dave here. Thanks for coming along to another episode of Legends of the Spire. This is the podcast that talks to the former players and managers of Chesterfield Football Club. This is episode number 46, so well done if you've made it all the way through so far. You should have a medal probably. Um, on the podcast today we have Tony Bryan with us. Uh, now he joined me to talk about his career and time at Chesterfield in the 1990s. He was a big fan's favourite under managers Paul Hart, Chris McMenemy and latterly John Duncan before leaving uh, in a swap deal for Nicky Law that took him to Rotherham. It was great having a chat to him uh, about defending, about some of those key games like the 4-4s at Anfield and the playoff final against Cambridge um, and also free kicks. Uh, and Tony also briefly spoke as well about the abuse from when he was a young footballer uh, really thankful to Tony for his honesty and there will be a bit of a disclaimer uh, on that part of the podcast just in case that's something that has personally affected you and you do want to skip it it's about seven minutes long uh, that part of the podcast but really thankful uh, to Tony for uh, for sharing that and uh, as part of the podcast uh, Tony is obviously of course a member of the 1990s uh, Legends of the Spire Trumps pack I can't call them top trumps because of trademarks and all that uh, I do still have about 12 um, packs of these left so the link will be in the bio in case you want to reminisce uh, about all those players from the 1990s and as always we are at Spire Legends on Twitter and Instagram Legends of the Spire on Facebook so please do get in touch so here we are, I really enjoyed having a chat with Tony, I hope you enjoy having a listen to it too. Here we are with episode number 46 with Tony Bryan. So you're from Dublin, aren't you? Born and bred in Dublin. Um, lived in Dublin for nine years of my life. And then um, we had a, a brief time where things were hard in Dublin and there was a few football clubs looking at me. So my mum decided to make the move to Birmingham. Um, we came off to Birmingham. Um, we were a very, very poor family as kids in, growing up in Dublin. Um, but it was great memories and loved every minute of it. I'm proud to be Irish. Proud to have played for my country, um, and always will be. Yeah, and like, were you always football mad then? In, in my days at the school over there, Dave, it was like um, Gaelic football, mm. and um, they always, when we played football on the tarmac, because there wasn't grass pitches in them days, the tarmac, um, they put me in goal, um, and. You know, I had no idea what football was because I used to play in Gaelic at school, even at a young age. Um, but now, it, you know, it just materialised because I was the smallest to put me in goal. And um, it was only when I moved to Birmingham, um, I got invited to a five-a-side football competition down at the local adventure playground. And I was running rings around everybody. And I just couldn't believe it. And these scouts from the... Sunday Football League were watching it and everything. And uh, <laughs> you've got ability, son. You've got a bit of ability. And um, it continued from there. Did you have a team you supported or anything like that? Manchester United. As a kid, without a shadow of a doubt. Everybody in Dublin at times supported Liverpool. 
But Man United used to have a kit with a white kit with three black stripes down it. And I just loved that kit and I had to have it for Christmas. And my mum saved and saved and saved and saved and I eventually got it. And it was just like, yeah, Manchester United's my team. Just had to be. And, and which players did you kind of look look at on the pitch? And Gordon Hill, Steve Koppel, um, uh, Buchan- um, not Buchanan, uh, Gordon McQueen, um, Gary Bailey, the goalkeeper. Um, it was just, you know, to see Stevie Koppel and Gordon Hill running up them wings. I think it was the Greenoff brothers in in the middle of midfield as well, or one of them anyway. Um, Frank Stapleton, another Irish lad, up front. I just love Manchester United. And were you always so? So, you, like you said, you're in goal a bit with the uh, back nine and stuff. But uh, so, at which point were you kind of uh, labelled as a defender, or did you move around the pitch a bit? It, it, well, I started playing school football in in Birmingham, and um, they put me in midfield, and I was scoring goals left left, right and centre. Um, you know, it was just for fun. I was ring, running rings around everybody again. And I always remember the school teacher saying to me, Brian, you've got ability, son. And, you know, I, I just went, yeah, whatever. I said, I hardly ever played football before in my life. I said, apart from Gaelic football. And um, it, it grew from there. And I went to centre forward. Um, didn't like getting kicked by the defenders. So I moved back into midfield. And then... Um, as, as I got older, uh, probably 14, 15 years old, I realised I liked heading the ball and I was quick. And uh, I just said, I, I don't mind playing right back or left back or centre half or midfield, whichever one. And and that's how it materialised. So you came to Chesterfield, obviously via Leicester, didn't you? So you played kind I of... Did about 16 odd games I think it was for Leicester something like that before coming 16 or 18 games and then there was a lot as a substitute um, which when you play for Leicester in the reserves I mean I went from the youth team to the reserves within by the time I was 16 when my first year I was playing in the reserves with the likes of Bob Hazel um, Alan Smith Gary McAllister Ali Mocklin um, Andy Feely and you know, it was brilliant that, you know, I was a youth team player, used to playing in the Midland Flood League, like every Saturday morning. And then um, to get into reserves, playing at Ewood Park and Old Trafford and everything else, it just gives you the taste for it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I made my debut when I was about 17 or 18, I think, for Leicester. Um, and once you've made your debut and you've played in front of a crowd, you just always want to play in front of a crowd. Yeah, and I think you know David Pleat came in after Brian Hamilton. My first manager was Gordon Milne. Um, I didn't really have much to do with Gordon Milne, but then Brian Hamilton came in, and Brian Hamilton came in my debut. David Pleat come in. He wasn't sure if he fancied me or he didn't fancy me, but he knew I was quick. I had the ability. I could play right back. I could play left back. I could play centre half. And you just get a taste for it. And after sixteen or eighteen games playing with the first team. I found myself in the reserves again and it, it's it's hard to take you know anybody who's been a footballer would understand that as well very very hard to take so I, I wasn't aware if anybody was watching me in the reserves or anything like that but I just went out there and just give it the best showing that I could every week 
like like you say that that kind of battle for three points in front of a crowd there's loads of footballers that have mentioned it you know how when you're kind of in the reserves you just kind of playing for yourself almost to try and be seen to get back into the first team yeah <laughs> when I was growing up like um the reserves were known as the mushroom squad that's what we used to call ourselves the mushroom squad kept in the dark brought out once a week and you know <laughs> Called upon when needed. Mm. That's what we, we used to call ourselves the Mushroom Squad. And any lad who's played football will tell you about that as well. Here's the Mushroom Squad up against the first 11, like, and all that. Oh, man, I better have a good game today. Like, the manager might pit me for the first team or whatever. But it was all banter at the same time as well. Mm. And it, it was fun. Um, but it was still competitive and you wanted to be in that first team. But there's only 11 places in the first team. So you had to be on your best every day. So was it just a case of Chesterfield coming in for you then, or was it, uh, or had you asked to? to no, no, I, I hadn't asked at all. You know, like I was um, playing away with the first of a sub, or actually playing in the first team, and then all of a sudden, I got called into David Pleat's office, and um, he just said. Brian, this might be the biggest mistake of my life. I don't know why I'm making the right decision or the wrong decision, but Chesterfield are coming for you. Would you like to speak to them? And I went, Chesterfield? The bottom of the bleeding division? I said, they've been battered 8-0 last week, 8-0 the week before, and 10-0 at Gillingham, I think it was, or something like that. And I went, you want me to go to Chesterfield? And he went, well, he said, like they, they want to speak to you. They've put a good offer in for you. And I went, okay. And um, there was a bloke called Sammy Chapman. He used to be a, a Wolves um, manager years ago. And he said, we're going to send Sammy Chapman with you to meet Paul Hart and Chris McMenemy up at Sandy Acre. He said, like, so that they don't pull the wool over your eyes because you're only 18 and they're paying a lot of money for you. So Sammy will make sure you get a good wage. And I just went, well, I can make sure I get a good wage. I said, I'm on £250 a week here at the moment. So I want at least £350 or £400, whatever. But no, I would still send Sammy with you. So it, it just came out of the blue. And I went up and I met Paul Hart. Um, very intimidating man. Very, very intimidating man. I just went, right, um, I've got to go home and speak to me mum and dad about this. I went, what have you got to speak to mum and dad for? And I said, well, I'm only 18. He said, are you a man or a mouse? And I just looked at him and I went, well, I'm a man. And he just went, okay. He says, um, I want a phone call by tonight. So he'd made a brilliant impression on me. Don't get me wrong. And he, he said, look, this club's going to change round. I know we're bottom of the league. He said, but this club is going to change round. And I went on, I did, and he didn't actually speak to my mum and dad about it. I just blagged him that I was going to speak to my mum and dad about it. And I thought about it, and I thought about it. And I'd watched Chesterfield two weeks previously. I think they were playing at Notch County, because my mate Rob Lane and Steve Prindeville were playing for the team at the time. And they'd come out of the same youth team as me at Leicester. And um, I saw Jamie Hewitt getting slaughtered by the fans. You know, like because Jamie was a young kid then. And I think because Jamie was a local lad, the fans that sometimes used to pick on Jamie more than anybody else. And I felt sorry for Jamie that night. I, I remember popping my head around the bench to Kev Randall and saying, can you ask Robert Lane to meet me out in the car park afterwards? 
And it, they just lost. They got hammered. And there's me popping my head around the bench, just kept around to say, like, you, can you just ask Robert Lyons to beat me in the car park? And Randall just looked at me and went, who are you? And I just went, it, it, it don't matter. I knew I'd made a mistake. Like, <laughs> um, so, you know, I didn't, um, didn't, I didn't meet Robert Lane in the car park anyway, put it that way. <laughs> but now, it, the, the more and more I, th- I thought about it, I thought, well, I'm going to be playing football every week in front of a crowd. I'd watch, they were getting two, two and a half thousand, three thousand people maybe. And I thought, that's what I want. You know, and I, I thought, well, I could be going from, First division down to fourth division, or what it was, we were in the second division then at the time before the Premier League came out. And Chesterfield were in the third division, I think, at the time when I went there. And I said, well, we could be in the fourth division, which is like the bottom league in, in the whole of the English division at the time. And I slept on it. I phoned Paul Hart next day and I just said, yeah, let's go for it. And, um, I went for it and I always recall it as the 15th of December because that's the day I first bowled to Chesterfield. But I think he's recording the record books as 17th of December or something like that. I'm not sure. Yeah. But best move I've ever made. Well, and it was, it, I mean, it wasn't a, a small fee, was it? Was it about 90,000? That's all it quoted as. It was 100,000. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to reveal on here if it's going to, f- for legal reasons or anything like that, but I was told that somebody was getting a paper bag payment and it wasn't anybody at Chesterfield. So I'm sure you can guess for yourself. And the, the funny thing is, in about my third game for Chesterfield, we played against Fulham. Fulham, I think it was, and Ray Lewington was the manager. And I think I scored in the game. I think you've put it in the questions that we've got today. Yeah, you scored, that was a score, didn't you? Third, third yeah, game. I, I scored in the game. And I think it was my second game at home or something, or my first game at home. And it was a left foot for about six yards that I put it in. And Ray Lewington, after the game, come down the tunnel running after me and went, Oi, you. I said, what? He said, why didn't you come and speak to me? I said, what are you on about? He said, why didn't you come and speak to me? He said, I put an offer of 130 grand in for you. And I went, you are? He said, I put an offer of 130 grand in for you, but Pleaty refused permission for you to come down to me because he didn't want you in the eyes of the big clubs down in London and anything like that. And I just said, <laughs> right, I said, I, I, Mr. I called him Mr. Lewington because like I had respect and everything. I just said, I knew nothing about it. I said, like, so, you know, I wasn't told. All I was told was Chesterfield was interested in me. And I think I was told Reading showed an interest as well at the time. Um, but it's like in football, you never know what goes on behind closed doors. And, you know, like I'm sure there's many a player where, you know, I heard something about Steve Williams, Aston Villa were going to put an offer in from before he broke his leg. I've heard rumours about that. And we just never get to know about it. All I know is on transfer deadline day, which wasn't transfer deadline day back in them days, it was like um, a sort of, what I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was a thing, stay by your phones today, lads. You might be getting out of the mushroom squad or anything like that. And it was funny. And you used to be like, every time the phone rung, you were like, it was your home phone then because we didn't have mobiles or anything like that. Um, but yeah, that that's, that was the first I knew about it when David Pleat called me into the office. And like I say, Ray Lewington, what he said to me, I said, well, 
I didn't know you offered 130,000. I wasn't even given a chance to speak to you. And like you say, there could be all, all types of other teams that are in for you. You just never know, will you? <laughs> yeah, never, ever know. Uh, only um, David please got uh, answers for that. And, um, you know, Paul Hart, um, there was rumours when I was at Chesterfield that Sheffield United made a big bid. Um, I can say that it was true because Dave Bassett actually spoke to me. Um, and, you know, he just... I think we were up at Catholic Army Base training and it was about two years after I joined Chesterfield. Yeah. And he said, look, Tom, he says, like, um, got a chance now. Norton Lee and Chris McManamy's given me permission to speak to you. He said, like, um, I want you to get your passport, come and meet us. We're going to Sweden uh, for a two-week pre-season tour or something like that. He said, no, if you can't make it, I've got one other person in mind and we're in the Premier League now. And it's Alan McCleary from Millwall, Alan McCleary. So I just went, I'll be back down in my passport within two seconds from Catholic. And then Chris McMenemy came in to see me and he said, Tom, no, Norton Lee won't let it happen. He said, he's blocked it. And I said, well, why has he blocked it? I said, I just signed a new contract, but you promised me that if somebody big club comes in for me, I could go. He said, I know, Tony. I said, but Norton's worried about if you go to Sweden and they don't like you, we've got you for the start of the season. What frame of mind are you going to be in? And to be honest with you, from then on, I was like, oh, my God, I had a chance to play. I think the first three or four games of the Sheffield United Premier season was going to be against Liverpool, Arsenal, yeah. somebody else and somebody else. And my head just blew. I was just like, oh, oh my God. And I'd been promised, no matter what happened, I could go. A good chance for a cross loss. Throw. Morris won it. Found a yellow boot. Oh, an orange boot, if you see what I mean. Francis gets it to, Cook, uh, to Williams and Ryan's on side. And here's a chance for Ryan. Will he cross it? Crosses. Ryan. Tony Bryan with the equaliser. Well, importantly, psychologically, town have struck back before half time. What were your first impressions of the of the club and the squad and the setup and everything? I was made to feel welcome um, straight away by Jamie Hewitt um, because it was Christmas time nearly when I joined and there was a Christmas deal at the club um, and um, Jamie said, look, Tom, you know, I've got all the way back to Drumfield because I had me in digs in Drumfield somewhere. Um, and I just went, he said, you can stay at my house after the Christmas party tonight. Well, it was his mum and dad's house. Um, I walked around the town, I seen this crooked spire, and I went, what's this? And then I got the feel, I was, this, is, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to be. And um, it was just eerie. It was like, you know, like I didn't know anybody. I was getting to know people and everything like that. But it was difficult because I was an 18-year-old, 19-year-old lad moving away from Leicester Diggs with a landlady. I was going to have to find a house. I was going to have to do something. But the people at Chesterfield were just absolutely brilliant. I always remember there was a fellow called Marcus Smith. He was an apprentice at uh, Chesterfield. Mm. And he was only about 14 at the time when I was shopping in this superstore, I think it was Marks and Spencers or whatever it was. And he just kept going. 
like that. So I looked at him and he, he was like, he was a bit, big, tall lad. He looked older than 14 and he just kept going like that. And I went, you got a problem, mate? And he went, no, 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 no. And I didn't realise, two weeks later, Paul Hart got a letter through the door, uh, through his thing saying, my 14-year-old son, Marcus Smith, recognised his idol and player, Tony Bryan, in a shopping centre in Chesterfield. And Tony Bryan asked me if he had a problem. But the, the, the truth of the matter was... When I was in Leicester, nobody recognised me when I played for the first team. Hardly anybody recognised me. But Marcus Smith, it just, that's Tony Bryan. You know, that's Tony Bryan, that's Tony Bryan. And I hadn't realised that, so I just went, you got a fucking problem, mate, or what? Because <laughs> he was bigger than me as well, as a kid. And it, it, this letter comes into Paul Hart, says... Tony was so rude to this lad and everything like that. And I'm like, Gaffer, I said, he was staring at me. He never acknowledged me. He never said, are you Tony Bryan? He just kept staring at me going, uh, uh, like that. And, and Paul Hart was absolutely pissing himself laughing about it, to be fair. <coughs> but I wasn't. I had to leave him a ticket for his mum and dad and him. My, my, we only got two tickets a week, I think it was at the time. So I had to leave my family to pay. So I had to leave two tickets for Marcus Smith and his family. But we had a good joke about it when we became an apprentice. But no, nah, the, the people of Chesterfield, they've just made me feel so welcome. Anywhere I went, anywhere I went, here's Brian, here's Brian, like whatever. All right, Tom, all right, Tom, all right, Tom. And um, I, I lived there for every football club I played for afterwards. Um, you know, like I went to... Rotherham, it was 20 miles up the road. I used to travel in with Chris Wilder every day. Chris Wilder always told me he'd become Sheffield United manager. And he was a good friend. Um, we had some good laughs together and all that. He used to call me Chessy. He said, you're just Chessy through and through, aren't you? You didn't want to come to Rotherham. And I went, well, yeah. I said, like, but, you know, I said, a manager comes in, he don't fancy you. And, like, that's the way it goes. Um and Chris Wilder was just like, come on then, Chessy, Chessy, everything Chessy. And he just, you just knew, you know, he was going to be a top class manager. Mm. You knew it was the way he acted. He was our skipper at the time and all that. But yeah, Chesterfield, I loved it as soon as I went there. And I've got plans, hopefully in the future, to move back there. Good to see the old spire is twisted as ever. You know, while we were going around the town doing those interviews, we ran across this chap holding a market stall for a friend this week, Tony Bryan, the Chesterfield centre-half. Play Liverpool's a chance for a lifetime when we should have won up there, like. Um, back down here, I think everybody's expecting everything to go rolls. You just have it up there, but they'll have a better team out. But we're confident we can get a result, like. So we'll just go for it. Uh, when I, I put out that I was, I was talking to you and I, I asked if anyone had any questions, <coughs> someone said, uh, was it true that you used to work on your mate's market stall? Yes, Dave Wallace. No, was it Dave Wallace? Oh, so that was the, was that the lampshades? <laughs> that was the lampshades. Yeah, it was unbelievable funny. I'm, I've never known anything like it. I was in Dave Wallace's um, lampshade in town, and ITV cameras came round filming when we were playing the second leg after we drew four all at Anfield, mm. and they said, "Have a guess who we came across in the market today?" Seen that on YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you seen it? Yeah, you seen it. Have a guess who we came across today? 
And it, it was hilarious. I said, will you be going to the game tomorrow? And I went, I'll be playing it. <laughs> and I went, you are. Like they had to edit it. And I was like, I'm playing centre-half tomorrow. And they went, oh, right, who are you then? Because <laughs> the camera people didn't have a problem and the interviewer didn't have a clue who I was. And I just went, well, and they cut it like and whatever. And then they got pictures of me carrying a lamp. Look who we bumped into today. Only Chesterfield centre-half Tony Bryan. <laughs> I think it's been seen on YouTube a few times. I don't know. But my wife's got it on her phone. I've got it on my phone. And it was just hilarious. And then <laughs> I'll never forget that night. We went one up after about 30 minutes. Tricky Trevor Hebert scored a screamer. And I always remember Chesterfield fancying and soon as soon as what's the score? Soon as what's the score? But the funny thing is, nobody will believe this, but when we played at Anfield, I was a friend of David Burrows. We grew up in school football. And David Burrows said to me before the game, Tony, we're shitting ourselves. I'm like, you are? He said, we're shitting ourselves. I said, you're kidding me, aren't you? He said, no. Nah. He said, soon as we call him the Rottweilers, his nickname. And we don't even know what the team is yet. This was like when we got there two hours before kickoff or whatever. So we don't even know what the team is yet because you won't announce a team till an hour before. So they put a, a full squad out, a full squad out they did. And like I remember um, Jan Mulby, I think it was, he shot from about 50 yards. And I said to him, Jan, I'm embarrassed for you. And he went, put your medals on the table, put your medals on the table, and who are you? Like and Sean Dice said to him, I'm embarrassed for you. Embarrassed for you. I can't remember what it was, but we went in. I'll never forget it. We went in half time, 2 0 up. And Chris McMenamin was just like this. It was for about five minutes. It was just like that. And he just went, Right, lads, all I'll ever say to you is as long as all of you live in this dressing room, no matter what happens, you'll never have a better chance of beating Liverpool at Anfield. And they go out and enjoy the second half. And we went out, 3 nil up. And I said to little Cliff Carr, I said, Cliff, do us a favour, will you? He said, what's up town? Watch up town, because we're just having it. I said, just kick me, will you, mate? He went, what are you on about, you little dickhead? I said, just kick me. And he, he said, what do you want me to kick you? I said, not in the balls. So he just kicked me in the calf or something like that. So he kicked me in the calf and I went, so I'm not dreaming. We're winning 3 0 at Anfield. And I was running around Anfield like that, going, yeah, come on, to the crowd and everything like that. I mean, Cliff got a little nah, a little nah. But that was, that was memorable. I mean, it was like the best comment I've ever heard, Dave Lancaster. We thought to be eight goals, but we didn't think we'd score four of them. <laughs> I think that comment's famous all over the world. Red nap. Cash inside. Mark Wright. And a chance for Lancaster. And Lancaster has scored for Chesterfield. Three minutes into the second half. And Mark Wright has made another blunder in the Liverpool defence to set up Dave Lancaster. What an amazing scoreline as Lancaster latches on to the error from Mark Wright to score his second of the night, Chesterfield's third, it's Liverpool nil, it's Chesterfield three. There's always banter the goals in football, no matter what it is. I mean, I remember um, 
my last game, my last game that I played in the Football League or Football Cup was at Newcastle, St. James's Park against, um, obviously, the Mighty Toon. And um, John Barnes was speaking before the game. And I, they made me captain because it was my last game. Um, whole city. And uh, I said to Barnsley before the game, I said, any chance of your shirt, Barnsley, after the game? He went, yeah, no problems, kid, no problems, no problems. So after the game, Ian Rushy stood next to me. And I've gone, looked around, see if Barnes is anywhere near me. He was down the other end of the pitch. I said, Rushy, any chance I can have your shirt? He went, yeah, no problem, lad, no problem. Took his shirt off, swapped shirts. Barnes, he comes running up the pitch and he went, you're blanking me, Skip. You're blanking me. You're blanking me. I went, no, no, no. He was just next to me. Like, can I just ask for his shirt? He went, you asked me in the tunnel for that, my shirt. <laughs> and like, you know, I just went. And then he carried it on into the players' lounge and everything. So I just went, I'm going to shut you up now, Mr. Barnes. And he went, what? I said, last time I asked for your shirt. I said, well, when we played Liverpool. He went, you went to Chesterfield, were you? I said, yes, it was at Chesterfield. It was at Chesterfield. And you wouldn't come out of the dressing room, so I couldn't get your shirt. So I just took the only shirt I could get. <laughs> like, And he was like, yeah, man, yeah, man. And he said, get, get all the players a drink and whatever. <laughs> yeah. I'll never forget that night at Anfield when we walked into a pub across the road, Norton Lee stopped the bus. We walked into this pub. Like, I, I, I think it might have just been straight across the road from the ground. And everybody stopped and looked as we were all in the tracksuits and everything. And all of a sudden, everybody's looking at us like that. And this one scouser stood up and went. And the whole public up, didn't they? All give us a, <laughs> give us a round of applause and everything <laughs> like that. We thought we were going to get battered. <laughs> we, we were going to get absolutely battered. But nah, some great memories. Yeah. Chesterfield, for me, I, I wish I, I'd have done it. 10 years stint there, 12 years stint there. Every club I went to afterwards, Rotherham, um, I won't say I wasn't appreciated, but I don't think I was accepted yeah. because of the rivalry between them. Um, then, to be fair, after that, I got a few good moves, which we'll speak about obviously later. Um, but Chesterfield for me was just like, I say, I never, ever wanted to leave. Never, ever wanted to leave. But I know you probably asked questions about what happened. Um, and I'll tell the truth. Well, I'll tell you. like you mentioned, so like first season with us, uh, so you made yeah. like, what, about 30 appearances, something like that in the league? And obviously yeah. we got relegated, so not, not a great start. Uh, but obviously it was, uh, we were down there anyway, weren't we, like you said. Um, but then there was a really good bounce back that's yeah, next year, wasn't there? Because it ended up in a playoff final, which was nice. I'll never forget the day we got relegated. We kept ourselves in it. Um, and I'm not saying I was turning or anything of it, but we gave ourselves a good chance on the last day of the season. And Reading came to town and uh, I gave away two goals. And I, gave, and I was gutted, absolutely gutted. I was literally crying on the pitch afterwards and Trevor Senior I'd gave him two goals I think it was big Trevor Senior and I always remember a bloke I've still got the letter on my scrapbook I can't remember his name but he was from a carpet company and he wrote me a letter and he said Tony Bryan 
you should never blame yourself. Never. He said, before you came here, we didn't have a chance of staying up that season, but you gave us a chance. And I framed it in my scrapbook and everything like that. And it, it, it was horrible. It was horrible. We'd give ourselves a chance. We'd beat Sheffield United twice. We'd beat Fulham. We'd beat a good few teams. Went to Wigan and won 2 1 when they had the two Spaniards, Martinez and whatever. And it was just, it was always a catch up game. It was a catch up, catch up, catch up game. So we at least we got to the end of the season, still had a chance of staying up. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. <clears throat> but um, that was probably one of the saddest days of my life because I went there to try and keep them up, to try and we had a belief that we would stay up as well because Paul Hart put that belief in us. Um, it was gutting. Mm. Probably the worst day of my life from what I can remember. Um, gutted. Absolutely gutted. Yeah. So how do you then, how, how quickly do you kind of get over something like that and then go into the next, when you go into the next season? Does it take a while? I remember, I remember Paul Hart coming in and I was crying in the players' lounge because I'd give away two goals that day. And he just said, like, you know, Tom, you've done brilliant for us this season. You've done brilliant. And I said, I know Gaffer, but I let us down today. I give away two goals. And he went, oh. And I remember Barry Hubbard coming up to me and Norton Lee coming up to me. And I was just gutted, inconsolable. But then we regrouped for the next year. And um, Paul Hart said, you know, Tom, if I had kept us up this year, it would have been a miracle because of all the results they'd had before Christmas or just up until Christmas. And we regrouped and probably the best squad of players I've ever dealt with in my life or played with in my life. We, we were, you're talking about probably 15 or 16 of us and we put up with injuries, we put up with everything and we just stuck together. You know, it was just like win together, lose together, die together. And that's the way it was. Great, great set of lads. Great team spirit. Great everything about it. And there wasn't much chopping and changing. You know, I think I played with Nobby. Uh, me and him centre-halves for quite a bit of time. Gunny for a few times. Nobby was switching round left-back, right-back. Lee Francis, Cliff Carr. Um, it was just Steve Williams. Um, obviously, Dave Waller. He was a big miss. We missed him through the season. Yeah. And, and a very, very good friend of mine, Dave Waller, you know, made me feel very welcome when I came to Chester. And his wife, Leslie, really looked after me. Really, really did. They took me as a young kid, as a wrong kid, because I don't think they had any kids at the time. And um, great, you know, the tradition in them days was win or lose, we'd go for a booze. You know, we'd go out for a drink or anything like that. We had great team nights out and all that, but we we knew when the time was right to party and when the time wasn't right to party. Someone might argue with that, but, you know, I can't disagree with it to a certain extent. Um, but now it was um, the next year. I mean, we scraped into the playoffs, absolutely scraped in. You know, we were in a good position and I think, you know, we struggled the last six or seven games. And then Grimsby on the last day of the season, um, beat him 2-0 two, two or 3-0, something like that, I think it was. Um, and then 
obviously the Stockport game, you know, everybody always asked me about what was the most memorable game you played in Stockport, without a doubt, at home on that Sunday morning. 4-0. Everybody's saying, we're going to Wembley and Paul Arch trying to calm us all down, trying to do everything to keep us, minds focused on everything. I knew we were going to be at Wembley. But the thing is, we went to Esley Park on the Wednesday, I think it was, or the, or the Tuesday. And Gunny handballed it within the first minute. And I went, Gunny, what are you doing, you dickhead? And he went, don't worry, tell the referee wouldn't have seen it. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, because if they'd have got a penalty first minute, it could have been a different game, completely. But as it was, it finished 6-0. And I'm going to get memorable. Chesterfield now look odds on to make the Wembley playoff finals thanks largely to a hat-trick from Calvin Plummer. He struck first in the 38th minute. Then on the stroke of half-time, he popped up for number two. After the break, a neat build-up, and there was Plummer again to complete a memorable hat-trick. Finally, a long free kick, a touch on in the box, and there was John Ryan to make it Chesterfield 4, Stockport County 0. There was always a sense that after their 4-0 win on Sunday, all Chesterfield had to do was turn up to qualify for Wembley. And after Bryn Gunn survived what looked like a blatant handball, it was clear Lady Luck was with them. When the luck looked like running out, Mick Leonard was equal to Stockport's best. But if anyone was going to score, it was perhaps inevitably Calvin Plummer, who plundered a hat-trick on Sunday. But credit for this goal to John Ryan, who robs Brown and Plummer makes life look easy. Now there's never a bad time to score a goal, but if you've been waiting five years, a strike on target must be like manna from heaven. So imagine John Chidozzi's relief as he breaks what must have been one of the longest barren spells ever for a striker. Well, I thought we were absolutely superb. Real professional job and, well, we played ever so well. Uh, I'm delighted. Proud of him. There's a picture somewhere of... Um... Mick Leonard and me and Dion Dublin. And it, it's somewhere in the archives. I don't know where it is. And Dion Dublin's got his eyes closed. Mick Leonard's got his eyes closed, coming to pinch, punch the ball. What should never have been a corner in the first place anyway. Hmm. And it's me with my eyes open, ready to head the ball. And Mick punches me out of the way. And Dion Dublin just knocks it in with his eyes closed. So, yeah, it was a cut now. And... If we'd have had Dave Waller, if we'd have had Dave Waller, and I'm not saying one man makes a team, but we didn't really have many chances in that game. We didn't at all. And neither did Cambridge. It was a typical, I think it was the first ever playoff at Wembley, weren't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. First ever playoff at Wembley. And if we'd have had Waller, because, I mean, it, it was phenomenal that season. And Jesus, overhead kicks, headers, the goals against Sheffield United at home. Oh, I was just unreal. I think Dion Dublin comes across as a really nice lad. And but I always remember after the game, he says, he said to me, he says, like, um, our manager Becky reckons you'll go a long way. He reckons you'll go a long way. Um, and I just went, cheers, mate. And he was he was a goal scorer. Obviously, we celebrate him with thing, but um it was still a it was a great day out for the fans. Um, but I remember we had a a hotel booked at Swiss Cottage, I think it was, somewhere in London. And we had to have the party. We had to, because win or lose, we were going to have a party. We got it booked in. And I must say, for the first three or four points, it was the dullest party I've ever been to in my life. But after that, 
We all drowned our sorrows. Yeah. We did. And we got on with it and got ready for the next season. Yeah. And then it was that next season. So this is now 1991, mm-hmm. which then we had change of manager, didn't we? So Paul Hart kind of left and yeah. enemy uh, took full full charge. What was that like when it swapped over? It was um, it was difficult because Chris was all the lads' friends, um, you know, and that's what you get. But Danny Webb is all the lads' friends now at the moment. Like, and, you know, Paul Cook's the gaffer at the end of the day. James Rob was the manager before and Danny Webb was the man who, you know, that's the way you work football management. And Chris was brilliant at being a, you know, a lieutenant and he put the arms around people and everything. But Hartie was the bully. Artie was a bully. You, you, you point people out like and threaten them and not threaten their lives or anything like that. But and to be fair to Chris, he made a good transaction. He had the respect of the players mm. because you know we we used to have banter with him and everything like that. Um, and yeah, he, Chris, it was good. But if I'm being honest, maybe he wasn't hard enough. Maybe he wasn't hard enough. Um, he, he could make difficult decisions. He could make difficult decisions, no no shadow of a doubt. But he probably wasn't hard enough on us with the way hard he used to lay into us and whatever. Um, but still, you know, got total respect for him as a manager, you know, because he stepped from being the assistant manager to a, to a boss. Um, and maybe it was a step too far for him because... He never became a boss after that. You know, he always coached at Newcastle, coached at wherever he was. And I don't, I think he's living in Spain now. Um, yeah. I think so. Looking yeah. after apartments or something, isn't he? In Spain. Yeah. Been yeah. Something like that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what a bad life he's got, eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, a terrible time. <laughs> he, he, Chris McManning was a lovely man. He was a brilliant man. Um, one of the lads. But, when it came to telling the lads off, he probably wasn't strong enough. Probably wasn't. Yeah. But he wasn't frightened to make decisions. Not at all. Not. Oh, that's a nice little bit of football then. Brian with the shot. It's gone all the way through. And that's a well-worked free kick. Just look at this again. Brian with the dummy. And there's the shot for a lot of players, and it found the back of the. So another question that we had from uh, from a fan when I did a call out was asking, yeah. him, uh, "You took a free kick in front of the. Uh, you scored a free kick in front of the away end at Saltergate one match." Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and they were wondering how you ended up taking free kicks and whether it was planned or anything like that. Yeah, it was like um, John Duncan said, "Right, I need somebody with a bit of skill." And we were all training in Daichi and everybody just laughed when I put my hand up. I went, me boss. And he went, no, I've got this free kick up my sleeve. So I said, okay, yeah, no problem, me boss. They were all going, oh, TB, get, 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 get to the back of the queue. <laughs> so they all tried it. They all tried it. And Dunks went, TB, you have a go, lad. <laughs> because that's the way Dunks used to be. <laughs> so first time I did it, I put it in the top corner. And Dunks went, finished, TB, you're on this free kick. Now, for about four or five games, we didn't get a free kick in that position. 
we never got a free kick in that position. And on this one occasion, it came up and Dunks looked at me and Rando looked at me like that. <laughs> they just went, yeah, no problems. All laid into me. Fella comes out to charge down, like, and whatever, drags it back with a foot, takes one foot, bang, in the bottom corner instead of the top corner. So it was only the second time I'd done it and both times I'd scored. And uh, job done. That's what I'll say. What can you say to that? Like, you know, it, but like Tony Bryant to take a free kick, you know, like Daichi wanted to take him and and all the pretty players wanted to take him and everything like that. But I just said, Gaffer, I'll do it. And they all tried it in training and couldn't do it. But I dragged the ball back perfectly in training because we had mud heaps in them day. So you had to allow for the mud heaps. Yeah. So Dunks just went, that's it, TB in this position is on these free kicks. But we didn't get one for four or five weeks. And then in the fifth week, it came up. I think I remember I took my shirt off and threw it around my head because I just, I just was that happy scoring a goal from a free kick instead of a header. And um, I got some stick. At, well, I think we lost the game 3-2, though. So it wasn't like... You know, Dunk said afterwards, well done, TB, or anything like that. But um, very memorable. So, yeah, I was just having a look uh, at kind of league positions and things uh, over your time with us. And obviously, you yeah. played in, in like that first season you came in, it was like 30 odd games, obviously, after you'd signed. And then the three seasons after, you were all, you were pretty much an ever present yeah. throughout the whole season. So, did you never, yeah. but I know, I know you ended up injuring, uh, retiring uh, kind of early, but in your period really with Chesterfield, you were an ever-present, weren't you? That's what um, Paul Hart loved. I was hardly ever injured. Um, I think I got one injury where I had a lump in the back of my neck or something like that. Um, and it was had to be cut out. Um, and apart from that, there was, I, I think I got... A, a punctured lung or something against Torquay or something. Um, but now every time the team sheet used to come up, I was usually on it under Paul Hart, Chris McMenemy, and mostly Dunks and Rando as well. Mm-hmm. Dunks and I just, I, I was lucky in my career early on that I didn't pick up a lot of injuries. Mm-hmm. So I was always available for selection. Yeah. I'm interested as well in in terms of because we have do have a few uh, people that watch where they might be more recent Chesterfield fans. Just for you to like describe yourself then as a player while you were at Chesterfield, what were kind of your key attributes? I'd like to say think I was honest. Um, I could head a ball. Um, I wasn't bad in the air for somebody who was only five foot eleven and three quarters. I was never quite six foot. I was very very quick. Very, very quick and um, reliable. I th- I'd like to think I was reliable. Um, I wouldn't be the man of the match every week, but I'd get a steady seven or eight out of ten every week. Okay, you had the odd nightmares where I tripped over a ball and Mark Jules went through and scored, but you get them days which is nothing you can do about. But I think you can become complacent when you play every game. You know you're going to be... The, in the team sheet and everything like that. But I tried never to get complacent because you never know when it's going to end. And, you know, I was proud and happy to play for Chesterfield. I mean, the support, home and away, especially away, away, they never stopped singing. 
it was un- unreal. And I remember June Steele and Gary Steele. I mean, I'm still friends with them on Facebook, like, and all that now. But I remember their faces years and years ago. And Tanky, the taxi driver, I used to leave the taxi driver's tickets every week for the away games and all that because my friends couldn't get to the away games. And um, it was just, just try not to be complacent. Try not to be, you know, okay, obviously I had a few points. I was out in the town and people used to talk to me, told me you were shy today, told me you were brilliant today, like whatever. But I never thought anything else that I was just one of them. Mm. And I wasn't above them. I wasn't above them. I was a poor lad from a poor family who was lucky enough and privileged to love to become a professional footballer. So I never forgot where I came from. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what they appreciated. Who were the players around that, around the squad, kind of during your whole time, really, that you were closest to? Closest to, um, I'd say, Dave Waller, um, Lee Francis, Dave Caldwell, Dave Caldwell, which was probably a bad influence. Um, or a good influence, whichever one you want to call it. But there's no getting, there's no getting round it. You know, he was a drinker. I liked a few bevies. You know, I never hide away from that um, because it's it's the truth. All it was, I was a you know, I, I liked time to party and I liked time to play football, um, like I suppose everybody does. Um, but um, close friend in football, you make a lot of acquaintances a lot of acquaintances because people move on. Um, But close friends, I would definitely say Dave Waller. Um, I mean, we we, we meet up now and again when I go back to the stadium to watch the game with my wife and my son. Um, And it's like we've never been away from each other. It's hard in in, in football because when I moved to Rotherham, I still saw all the lads because, I mean, Dunks, Dunks was a very good friend of mine, John Duncan and Kev Randall. Um, because where I used to go and play for Rotherham and they played at home and Rotherham played at home or away or whatever, we always used to end up in the same pub, which was my father-in-law's pub at the time, the Star on Brampton. And, you know, Dunks and Randall had massive respect for, because Dunks had a difficult decision to make when he came, um, because I was a a fan's favourite in a way. Um, But... I, he gave me the choice whether I wanted to go or whether I didn't want to go. But to be given that choice means he wants you to go. Yeah. Without putting the blame on somebody. You know, and it was TB, I really don't want you to go, but I want you to go and speak to them. So why are you asking me to go and speak to them if you don't want me to go? I said, like, because he, he knew he wanted Nicky Law. But that's football. And that's um what makes football a great game because one manager might fancy you and another manager might not fancy you. And to be fair, for what Dunks has done, he made the right decision. So, this is, be- so this is kind of, so it, So John Duncan uh, came in, didn't he, kind of partly through the 91, no, sorry, 92, 93 season. Yeah. Which was that, like that Liverpool 4-4 season. Yeah. And then, uh, and then it was, yeah, and then it was in the kind of early part of the 93-94 season, wasn't it? I think you played maybe about nine or ten games, something like that. And yeah, and then this kind of swap deal for Nicky Moore yeah. came along. Nicky Moore, yeah. It, it dunks, you know, I could tell 
that I wasn't his type of player. I could tell. Um, but through training, I mean, and you got to remember, Sean Dyche was just converted from a, a centre midfield player to a centre half. And what a good job he did, by the way. Hands up to him, Sean Dyche. Um, but I always knew Dunks was like, mm, I'm not sure about TB. I'm not sure about TB. Randall, great lad, absolute legend, like him, whatever. But Randall, again, the one who puts his arms around everybody. And Dunks was the one who made the decisions. Mm. And I remember um, Praise and Grumble, you know, Dunks, everybody slagging Duncan off for letting me go. And I actually went on Praise and Grumble. And I said, you know what? I said, get off the blokes back. He gave me a choice. I said, but the choice was to go and speak to him or not go and speak to him. And I think everybody knew what I knew, what I meant, or everything like that. But um, to be fair to Dunks, uh, when I got released on a free transfer by uh, Rotherham, I was actually in Mallorca with Rotherham United, Archie Gemmell and John McGovern. And Dunks phoned my wife at the time then and said, look, TB's been put on this free transfer list. And we hadn't even been told we were in Mallorca with Rotherham. So I remember Paul Hart turned up with, to meet Archie Gemmell and John McGovern. And we were going out for a meal that night with the team and everything like that. And uh, Gemmell said, everybody wear trousers and a shirt. So when I found out Dunks was on the phone to my wife to say, like, Tony's a free transfer, I turned up in a vest and shorts. And he went, hey, Brian, what do you think you're doing, son? And I went, you're not my boss anymore. And he just, he didn't know what to say. And he went, oh, uh, what, what do you mean? I said, you're not my boss. I've been given a free transfer. But I said, but you haven't had the balls to tell me. I said, you're going to tell me when we get back from this trip? Like, whatever. And Hardy went, Tony, calm down, calm down. Because Hardy's missus was there as well. It was in Mallorca, somewhere up Callister, where all the Forest players used to go and all that. And to be fair, Dunks did say to my missus, look, do you want me to put an offer in for Tony? So I'll offer 30 grand, 35 grand for him or 40 grand or something like that. And I got in touch with Dunks and said, no, Dunks, the best thing I can do is get a free transfer. And I got a move to West Brom after it. Uh, Alan Buckley, who'd always been at Grimsby, he tried to sign me for Grimsby a few times, but Harty would never give, he'd always say four or 500 grand that he wanted for me. Um, and Alan Buckley couldn't believe that he got on a free transfer to West Brom. And I remember Sean Dyche, bless him, he made a nice phone call to me and he says, uh, Tom, make the best of it. You're going to the first division again where you started. He said, like, make the best of it, son. And to be fair, I got really bad injuries and I didn't make the best of it. Hi, everyone. Uh, Dave here. At this point of the podcast, Tony talks about the abuse from when he was starting out uh, in his career in football. Uh, if this is something that is sensitive to you uh, and you do want to skip it, then you forward on about seven minutes. Uh, but otherwise, uh, yeah, really thankful uh, to Tony for his honesty uh, in this part of the podcast. Um, if, if I'm being totally honest, I probably could have carried on playing, um, but I was going through a, a very, very difficult time then. Um, I, I, I'm sure I know everybody on here knows about the abuse I suffered as a child. Um, I don't mind speaking about it. Um, but I was at a stage in my life where I was just going through a divorce um, and 
Mark Hately came up to me. He was a manager of Hull. And he said, look, Tony, he said, I can't have this with you. Playing and not training, playing and not training. He said, I needed two days off instead of one day off. And thing. And I was in, I think I was in such a, a bad position at the time, a bad place where I was going through a divorce. Still couldn't get over the fact that the, the abuse had took place and everything like that. And um, I just, I gave up. I'm being totally honest. I probably could have played about 100 more games, um, but I had two and a half years left in my contract at Hull City. Um, Mark Haley came to me, made me an offer. Um, the PFA got in touch with me, said, you know, Tony, this is what you'll get. We'll pay your pension up. We'll do, you'll also get a, a gratuity thing or whatever. And I just had enough. And um, I just went, yeah, I'm going to retire. I'm going to retire. And looking back, it was probably the wrong decision, if I'm being totally honest. It was probably the wrong decision. But it was how I was feeling at the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I could never, ever get out of my head what happened to me as a child. Never. I've learned to, to live with it. Um, I took it all the way to the high court, but it got, like they set, decided to settle. Um, two weeks before we went to trial and they've never accepted responsibility they've never apologised um, they've never they got away lightly they got away lightly everybody knows it was in the news um, what happened with the Barry Burnell situation at Manchester City and Crew Alexander Um you know, the thing is, I, I tried to report it in 1988 and the then England manager or Aston Villa manager, Graham Taylor, as we all know, told me to sweep underneath a carpet. I'll never get them words out of my head. Never, ever get them words out of my head because, for one, I tried to do something about it at the time when I was 18. And for two, the amount of people it happened to afterwards. So... Now, I believe it will never happen again. So I'm proud. I'm so proud of what I've done, um, what Andy Woodward's done, um, so that it will never happen to a child again. Because, you know, it has to be cameras on the coaches now and everything like that. So they have to be FA registered. They have to be everything. And, you know, for the, the, the pain that I've gone through, living with that for the rest of rest, I'll, I'll live with it for the rest of my life. No matter what happens, it'll be there till the day I die. I've seen all sorts of psychiatrists. I've seen people, you know, and if there's anybody on here watching this, you know, I just say to them, stay strong. Absolutely stay strong because the truth will be always revealed in the end. And once the truth is revealed, you can get, you, you can start to get on with your life, um, but it'll never ever go away. But it gets easier. It gets easier. But, 95% of the time, I'm a happy, happy lad who couldn't be happier. Love my wife, love my friends, my family. But there's always 5% of me that's like, um, goes back to what happened when I was a child. And, you know, for what it's worth, you know, that is, to anybody who's ever happened to it, have the courage to tell somebody. Have the courage 
to tell somebody because you can't bottle it up inside you. You bottle it up inside you, it'll kill you. It will absolutely kill you. And I'm sorry to put a little bit of a dampener on the thing, but it's something that I felt was important. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it was incredibly brave, like you say, when you and lots of other people came out and spoke about it. Was it Victoria Derbyshire, was it? Um, it, it, it was, yeah. Um, I lived with um, a family in Ashgate when I first went to Chesterfield. And Kat and Ray Kat and... Um, when I went back to Chesterfield years later, the, you know, after it had all been on telly and everything like that, and Kat said to me, she says, you know what, I wondered if you were going to come forward, Tony, because I told her. She said, Tony, why are you the way you are? And I told her what had happened I got abused as a child. And um, she just went, as soon as I saw that on the television, I thought, are you going to go, is Tony going to go forward? Is he going to go forward? And... Um, I felt it was my duty to go forward uh, because I tried to do something about it years and years ago. And it, it, it's not easy going on national television live in front of people. Um, but um, it, it, it's something that I felt I had to do. I felt like, um, I remember Paul Hart, um, he tried to get a psychologist in for me because he, he said, Tony, what's the matter with you? So I, I don't sleep very well, Gaffer. I don't sleep well at all. And he says, why? I never told him. I just said, like, you know, I don't sleep very well at all. So he just got this fella, and he was listening to waterfall music and rivers flowing and everything like that. And I just, I was like, Gaffer, this ain't for me. I said, like, I can't do this. But no, it's, um, it's something that's, you know, was well publicised. It was all over the world. And now you don't hear anything about abuse in football. And I don't think you will for a long time because everybody will be there told, and I'm proud of it. And so should Andy Wood would be. So what kind of happened then after your, after retirement? So I saw that you, after, uh, did you run a bar in Mallorca for a while? I did, like yes. That? Yeah, I went over to Mallorca um, in 1998, I think it was. Did you do? 97, I retired. 98, I went over. I did a season over there for six months because it was in Mallorca and um, enjoyed it, to be fair. Living in the sun, it was nice. Came back, worked for VK and GBL International with Mr. Perez and um, decided I was missing the sun again. So I went back, worked for some friends of mine over there. And then um, the chance of my own bar came up as well. Um, so I got my own bar. I did it for three or four years. But like everything, um, the Spanish, they'll rent you anything. But when you build it up, I built it up one of the most successful bars um, in Alcudio itself. And uh, they wanted it back. They wanted it back. So, but looking back, it was a good time that I got out because it was the crash 2007 when everything crashed and the Spanish were just all, everything, the house prices, the whole lot dropped. So it was a good decision. And now living happily in Birmingham. Well, Bromsgrove. <laughs> <laughs> I, Bromsgrove. 
I used to live with someone at university that was from Bromsgove and she never said she lived in Birmingham. <laughs> yeah, that's right. My wife always reminds me of it. We're not, we don't live in Birmingham, we live in Bromsgove. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great. Well, I've probably taken up loads of your time, but I was just wonder what your favourite kind of memories of Chesterfield were then with the Rennie. Like you say, you mentioned some of those standout games like playing in Liverpool and, uh, yeah. and, and, and yeah, I mean, getting to play at Wembley and, and things like that. You've had some... Had some, you were you were there at the club for a, a long, long time. What is it? Over two hundred appearances. It's uh, yeah, it must be yeah. What, are there any highlights you look back on at that time? The highlights for me would have to be probably my debut at Swansea. Um, I'll never forget it. And somebody on the Chesterfield fans group sent me a picture hmm. of my debut at Swansea because I've never seen any pictures like. Um, he sent me a picture of me running onto the pitch and I was like, geez, where'd you get this from? He said, oh, I had a little camera back in the day tone, like, and all that. And it was a brilliant gesture. Um, obviously, the Stockport game on that Sunday morning, I'll never, ever forget that. Never, ever forget it. Um, Wembley, yeah, it was nice. I can't remember much about it. You know, I can't remember if I want a header, if I want a tackle, because all I've ever seen is a goal. I've never seen really the highlights or anything like that. Because um, the playoffs weren't televised them days. It was just a highlight or whatever, a little bit shown on ITV. Um, Liverpool, obviously, to see 5,000, 6,000 Chesterfield fans at Liverpool and singing soon as soon as was the score, you're getting sacked in the morning. <laughs> you know, that's, that's memorable. And then taking back to Salt the Gate and see it again as well. Um, absolutely brilliant. Um, a lot of games in the in the in it, you know it, the games where I scored. Um, I scored two in one game. That will always be. I think it was against Maidstone United or something like yeah, that. Maidstone, yeah, I remember seeing that. Yeah, Maidstone, two two goals. Um, but just great, great memories of of Chesterfield living there, going around town. Hey, oh, Brian, what's that doing out again? And you know, I was like, oh, here we go again. Here we go again. Like, and I just spoke to him. And, you know, if it was, if I was in an Indian restaurant and somebody said, can I have your autograph toe or something like that? I was just like, yeah, no problems. My wife used to sort of say, well, why can't they just leave you alone? So, no, 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 no. They're the fans. They pay our wages. You know, like I could get where she was coming from because, you know, we were on a night out, whatever. But somebody comes and mash your autograph, takes nothing to just go, da 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 Kids are like, well, you're there, where you mate, for me, fag like, or whatever, you know, messing about. Um, but now, um, I just, like I say, my plans are to, you know, I spoke with the wife and everything to end up in Chesterfield, so I'm halfway towards my kids. Um, always have fun memories of it. Made some great, great friends there and still friends with them now to this day. Western Saltergate, just six minutes gone when Andy Morris was adjudged to have been brought down by keeper Mark Beeney, who might well consider himself a touch unlucky. Despite Mason's protests, referee Roger Wiseman was adamant. Brim Gunn stepped up to tuck away his seventh penalty of the season. The second goal had to come and it duly arrived on 20 minutes. The cross from Ryan, defender Tony Bryan heading in at the far post. Chesterfield made sure of the points on the hour mark. Nigel Hart's corner and Brian there again with a firm header. 3-0 and all over bar the shouting. 